time is not unlimited. Tomorrow right. is really not guaranteed. I think living with intention and passion, both at work and, and in your and personal life, I think it's, it's very important. And I really try to practice that. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Young Enterprises podcast. We're the end-to-end mentorship platform for enterprising students to unlock their career. Everyone wants to be three to five years ahead in their life, so where do you want to be? I'm your host, Alec Agopian, here with my co-host, Jack Hildebrand. On this episode, we welcome another executive for the Healthcare Industry Month, Hakan Zakul, the VP and Head of Diagnostics at Pfizer. Mr. Zakul has been there for about 20 years. He received his undergraduate degree in animal science, master's in animal genetics, and then came to the U.S. with $320 to get his Ph.D. degree in quantitative genetics. During this episode, we talk about his career journey to America, learn about his day-to-day role, receive some tips for the workforce, and then briefly touch on the long-term safety of the Pfizer vaccine. Don't miss out on a great episode to get expert advice from one of the best in the healthcare industry. Make sure to visit our website at youngenterprises.us where you can sign up for the newsletter and even enter your phone number to receive notifications when our episodes drop. Also, you guys know us here at YE, we don't pay for advertising. So if you love what we're doing, make sure you subscribe, leave a five-star review, or share it with your friends, family, pets, and grandparents. Great episode. Let's get into it. Good one, Alec. Can you tell us a little bit about your college experience? How did you decide on your major? And what did you see yourself doing with your career? Yeah, good question. I'm not doing what I graduated with. <laughs> so I, I went to, I'm a native of Turkey. I grew up in Turkey. I, I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees in Turkey. Came to the U.S. to do a Ph.D. degree back in 1986, uh, so 35 years ago. Um, my first degree was actually in animal science, and I'm not doing anything to do with animals. I did a master's in, uh, in animal genetics and uh, had a PhD degree in quantitative genetics later on. Uh, so, so to directly answer your question, uh, the degree was in animal science. I decided pretty early on that's not what I really wanted to do, but I, I did like the genetics piece, so I focused on that. So my master's focused on learning population genetics and some quantitative genetics. And then I wanted to um, continue on to a PhD program. And then I, I received a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation. Uh, that was a three-year scholarship paying for school, personal expenses, living expenses, basically everything. Um, I came here with 320 bucks in my pocket. So that's all I had. Wow. That's how I came here, and I switched to genetics. And then, um, uh, so my career, uh, I did three distinct things so far. Uh, started with statistical genetics. That's the part of genetics that you're doing a lot of data analysis, looking into disease uh, traits, uh, common and complex diseases. And then I did pharmacogenomics, where you put those in clinical trials, those markers you find, genetic markers, and diagnostics, which is what I've been doing since 2008 where you're um, actually selecting patients using certain diagnostic testing um, and, and looking to see if, you know, you can actually develop drugs that are more efficacious for those um, diseases. 
Did you have any mentors growing up? And if so, how were you able to maintain those relationships and decide who you needed to target? I did. Um, I certainly had mentors. I would say if I go back all the way um, you know, to my college days in Turkey, one of my uncles uh, I was uh, pretty close with uh, was always a good mentor. Maybe that's part of the reason why I ended up um, in the in, in you know agriculture school studying animal science because that was his major. Certainly had uh, the benefit of mentors throughout my PhD degree back at the University of Minnesota. Later on, I had a really good mentor. Um, well, rest in peace. He's, he died several years ago, but he was my uh, postdoctoral advisor at UC Davis. I learned a great deal from him, and certainly through my pharma, biotech, and pharma careers, I had mentors as well. I've been with Pfizer 21 years and certainly had several, um, several uh, colleagues and senior managers who took the time, and, and I also seek that kind of advice. I think it's really good for, uh, for the mentee to seek a mentor um, mm-hmm. and, and find uh, a mentor or mentors who are really in line with what they want to learn, or if they have a very good idea of what to pursue, to pursue that. So I had that benefit, certainly. Mm-hmm. Mr. Sakul, what were your first few jobs that you had out of college, and how do you think those helped you advance through the industry? So I didn't necessarily have um, a job in its traditional sense, but when I was in Turkey and started the PhD program, I was a, a teaching assistant, so I was teaching statistics and other classes and certainly interacting with students. Um, but a, like a job job, like if, you know, you raise in this country, like my kids, you know, you go work at McDonald's or, or places like that. Um, I didn't do any of that because I was always busy in school. And I mean, apart from a couple of small kind of summer jobs, I worked at the Turkish parliament once for a few months. That was actually pretty cool. Um, that was when I was in college, second year of college. So that was really nice to you know, go eat lunch with, uh, where, where, you know, janitors were eating and being able to actually interact with them. That was pretty cool. But, um, but other than that, really, uh, my first job, I'd say first real job was a biotech job. And that's really post-PhD. I mean, I went to school probably 20, some 22 years, if you don't count the postdoc. So it's a long time. 22nd grade, huh? <laughs> wow. Yes. Yeah, so- some people have to go to school a long time to learn. How many of those years were you learning English? Like real learning English would, would have been about four, three and a half, four years in Turkey, okay. evening classes, and then, you know, practical English, kind of spoken English a little bit. But the rest of that was, I mean, it's, you know, five years of, but if, if you consider K through 12, K didn't exist in Turkey at the mm-hmm. time. So it's, you know, first through 12. And then, uh, you know, I had um, four years of college. I had a master's a year, two and a half years of PhD, which I left behind to do one over here in the U.S. So that's three and a half years of that, another four years of postdoc. So if you add it up, that, that's kind of all, of all of my education. What are your current day-to-day responsibilities as the vice president and head of diagnostics at Pfizer? We have to check off every day to ensure that your company is productive? So my day-to-day role is, I guess to explain my day-to-day role, I need to explain what precision medicine is. Uh, so many drugs, you know, we develop them for the masses, right? So um, we don't have enough scientific information, enough robust scientific data to actually break down the patient groups into smaller groups. 
and develop drugs for those. But in oncology particularly, and this is now happening in other areas as well, um, we have enough information that have resulted in robust biomarkers. These are biological markers, let's say, or genes and, 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 and similar, similar biological markers where you, um, you can, based on scientific data, once they're considered robust enough, you can actually develop a, a diagnostic test, for example, for, for um, whatever indication, whatever genes you're looking at, and enroll patients based on, in this case, the genetics of their tumor. And you enroll only those individuals into a trial, and you develop the uh, your drugs. Your drug program is developed basically through those patients enrolled using that diagnostic. And then when you get to the FDA, you get approval for the diagnostic and the drug combination. And now you go to markets with that. So, so it's the that those diagnostic tests are called companion diagnostics. That they they accompany drugs to markets. They're companion diagnostics. They're they're essential for the uh, safe and effective use of those medicines. I have a group that oversees the companion diagnostics developments that go side by side with drugs. It's, it's really the field of precision medicine where we're developing using genetics and genomics information. Uh, in, we're incorporating that into drug development process. That's where I sit um, as a geneticist. That's what I do day to day. Sounds like quite the process. I would say it's a really fun one because you're applying state-of-the-art science, right? Mm -hmm. And science is changing all the time. So it's really fun because we keep learning new things. As we learn new things, we, we evaluate if those, if those new findings are robust enough for us to say, hey, there's enough evidence for this biomarker, for example, uh, for breast cancer or you know, colon cancer, or it could be a rare disease that we now can actually enroll patients using this information because we feel science is there now to be able to help that patient population in a more effective manner. And then you end up saving lives. Well, you know, it does actually allow people to live longer with um, uh, hopefully much better quality of life. I just, last weekend, I'm an avid cyclist and in my uh, last stretch of the uh, of biking, I stopped at this cafe that I usually stop um, about six, seven miles away from my home. I met a patient who's been on, uh, has now small cell lung cancer. This is the part of lung cancer that's the most common. About 85% of lung cancers are now small cell. And she's been on drugs uh, for about um, nine years now. Two of those are Pfizer drugs, including the current one that she's on. And it was amazing to hear her story because, you know, she looked completely healthy. Obviously, she was stage three, then became stage four. And eventually, her tumor started metastasizing into the brain. Not a lot of drugs can cross the broad brain barrier. But they were, she was put on our drug just recently. And, and a couple of weeks later, had an MRI and was almost completely clear. The tumor, tumor was pretty much gone in most places in her body. It is so gratifying to meet people like that because, you know, she had to take a diagnostic test that my group had some involvement in, in enabling. And that's, you know, with a PhD degree, that's about as close to patients as I can get. And it's really gratifying when you meet those patients to see, you know, the company you work for has products that actually really make a difference in their lives. Yeah, that's amazing. That's job fulfillment right there. So it looks like you've yes. been at Pfizer since even before I was born. So how are you able to move up the chain every few years all the way to a vice president executive role? 
Uh, great question, Alec. I was hoping you'd ask that because I think it's, you know, we all have to be advocates for ourselves, right? You can have great mentors, you can have great friends, you can have supervisors who have your best interest, but for you to really grow and keep going, you know, no one is going to be able to read your mind. I think it's really important to advocate for yourself. So I did that very consciously, and I do that for folks in my group now, even if they are not doing it, I am forced it because it's important for people to try to control where their career is going, right? So um, I came to Pfizer as a director level. So that meant I had uh, three promotions um, to get to the VP level. Uh, you know, each has to be really justified. There has to be a business need for these things. Um, and I, as I got into different programs and saw opportunities to help the company grow in a particular area, uh, that also resulted in me being able to professionally grow. And, uh, and for that, you know, I had to work with my managers, different managers in each time, uh, and be able to put together a business justification as to why a different level of a higher level of position would be needed for, job, for that job to be executed uh, adequately. Uh, so I think the lesson to learn from that, and that's three distinct positions inside Pfizer, but each one feeding into the next one in terms of um, kind of logical career improvement, career uh, advancement. I think the message, and I, and I do talk to a lot of uh, younger folks um, and try to, you know, give them, uh, mentor them and, and tell them about kind of my career path, which is not always the same for everybody else, but just the basic lessons that I've learned. Uh, and, and, you know, lesson number one, you have to advocate for yourself. If you don't know what you like to do, it's okay. But in time, you will. And as you do, then think about, do you need something else? What else do you need to learn to be effective in that job? And then seek to get that through your manager, through your company. And if there's a good fit, chances are you'll get that. But if you don't ask for it, you may not get it. Because if you don't know where you're going, you're going to be kind of like, winds will push you in one direction, you'll get in that direction, and then you'll change direction. It's much better to know where you're going, but also really draw pleasure from your job, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I know this is going to sound like a cliche, but I don't usually feel like I'm, I'm working, working. Like, it, it's not work. It's, it's, it's actually a lot of pleasure because I'm learning new things all the time. And, and, and if you can find that sort of an environment, I think it's great. And if, you, if you're not in that sort of an environment, I would say, I mean, life is too short to really do something you don't like. I think we all can find um, something we like with passion. And if it is in the right place, then you move, you move on to the next place, right? Mm -hmm. Drawing your work is definitely the goal. Absolutely. It's unbelievable how Pfizer produced a COVID vaccine in such a short amount of time. How are you guys able to accomplish that? Were all other aspects of the company dropped for an all-hands-on-deck effort? And did you have a contributing role? So there's been so much already published on how Pfizer did this. There's actually a, um, a, a TV segment um, that talks to how Pfizer actually did this in such a short time. Our CEO was involved in that. And actually, he's writing a book as well, I think, coming out um, toward the end of the year about this whole process. There's plenty of information on how that was enabled. Um, as you know, we collaborated with a company called BioNTech really encourage you to 
to uh, you know, in, in the interest of time, I'm not going to tell you all about the details, but I will say there's plenty of information. Uh, my particular role, so I can't say I really played a big role in this at all, but uh, in the early, early stages of this program, uh, because we, um, we wanted to be able to start this vaccine program quickly, and that meant uh, uh, testing the patients uh, or would-be patients who would come to the sites, uh, clinical trial sites, and the Pfizer colleagues who would be interacting with them, they needed to be disease-free. So we made some recommendations, looked at the landscape, diagnostic landscape, and made recommendations as to which companies' testing platforms would be best suited uh, to be able to make sure they were all, you know, disease negative. And that's about all we did. Uh, rest of it, really, I mean, the, 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 it's, that's a very minor involvement, by the way. Uh, it was just advice. It's the vaccine group along with BioNTech that really delivered. And there are uh, just countless number of Pfizer, Pfizer colleagues who were firsthand involved in this program. I wasn't one of them. Since the majority of our listeners are younger, and some may be skeptical about the Pfizer vaccine, what would you be able to tell our listeners about the vaccine's long-term safety? You know, it's not an ex- area of expertise for me, so I'm not going to be able to tell you much, much except to say, I mean, th- there's plenty of places they can, they can actually go to learn about the vaccine from its production, from how it's to, to how it's delivered, the mRNA technology, and there are also other vaccines with the DNA technology. Ours is not the only vaccine out there. I've been vaccinated, if that, if that counts. I have both doses. I think my second dose was about two months ago. I certainly understand the, uh, the genetic mechanism. mRNA technology has been in development, was in development for a couple of decades before it was actually used at this scale. You know, I would say if, if folks have any concerns, they need to educate themselves. There's plenty to be educated with, right? There's a lot of material out there to read. Uh, including Pfizer's own website. And I'm happy to provide folks with any information. You know, I can direct them to sites where they can actually read this. What do you think of companies like Salesforce and Facebook allowing their employees to adopt remote work permanently? Do you think that's good for the workforce? Or do you think companies should be in the office? Um, I believe it's been very productive uh, for, for most people inside the company. You know, for us, not to have to travel and, you know, with no travel, being focused at work, being able to also balance your work and family life and then home life. Uh, I think it's been actually very positive. Mm -hmm. I imagine, um, you know, Facebook and Salesforce aren't going to be alone in, you know, going forward. I think, I think um, this, the the COVID-19 situation probably permanently changed certain things in our lives. Uh, and hopefully, you know, many of it for the better. What is the most significant learning experience you have had in your professional career? And what would you have done differently? This is often the toughest question we ask. There are so many, so many things I learned. Um, I worked on a project around 2009 for a couple of years that was really demanding and uh, demanded every basically waking hour. It, it, it was quite difficult. Um, one of the avenues I stayed sane was actually get into cycling to work. So I, w- I had that 45 minutes, 11 miles of cycling in both directions, uh, having, th- having those, you know, two time frames beginning and the end of the workday was very useful to me. I think it was, it was very difficult. You know, when you have 
programs like that, really difficult to stay on top, really difficult to manage. Um, your personal time is gone. I guess I could have done things differently. You know, I, I do have similar projects now, but I think I, I handle them a lot better because I know what it's like and I know that you got to remember to breathe and you got to remember you really need to, I mean, I, I try to do this in my daily life. You kind of need to live your life like tomorrow is really not guaranteed. So, you know, when you're done with your work, your conscious is clear that you've delivered what you're supposed to deliver that day, yet you're also taking care of yourself and you're, you're also attending to those around you who may need your attention. It's, it's tough to keep that balance. You're always failing on one side or the other. Once you go through a couple of these and you're more conscious about how and where you spend your time, uh, I, think, I think you become a little better. I certainly have become better in handling them. Other than that, uh, another thing I learned, not to get into work politics. I know this sounds uh, maybe odd to you, but, you know, every company has its own culture and, and there's always things that will bother you. I've learned not to worry about things I really cannot change for the most part. You just have to accept you move on. And, I, and, and I've, one lesson I learned over my, you know, through the years at work is that if you actually deliver quality outcomes, quality work, you do what you're supposed to do, you do that with intention, with focus, and you deliver results, you will always be favored because you're actually doing what you're supposed to do. If you, you know, play politics, you're not really delivering, but you're kind of seeming like you're delivering. Those individuals really don't last very long. There, there's that great leadership that, you know, you work with people, you develop them, but you also deliver what you're supposed to. And if you do that in, you know, we do that in our group, it's, it's been very successful that way. Then, then you stay there. You know, there's a reason why I stayed as long as I did here. I don't have to. And Pfizer didn't have to keep me this long either. But it's been a very good relationship for, for a, a good reason because if you have your needs met, the other party has their needs met, that means it's, it's a well-working relationship. That's a lesson I, I always try to relate to others I speak with that, you know, don't worry about what others think of you all the time because you cannot change what they're thinking and neither should you really try. You just focus on what you're supposed to do and be kind to others around you. Uh, I think a lot of things kind of fall in place. What advice and or tips could you give to someone starting out at a new job in order to become well-liked, respected, and build street cred? So take your time to learn about the company you're working for or whatever enterprise you're working for. Understand, you know, look at their culture and, you know, evaluate if you really fit that culture, right? You know, you're spending somewhere between a third and a half of your life doing something toward that profession. You better like it and you better align with it. If you're not aligned, sooner or later, it's not going to feel satisfying to you. So um, when, you, when you're new in a job, I think learning the landscape, lay out the land, uh, learning who does what, establishing alliances, not being an island is extremely important. These days, no one really delivers something on their own, right? So, so you're not always an individual contributor. You're part of a team. And it's in your best interest to get to know the team members. We, don't all, we always say that work. We don't all, all have to be great friends, but we do have to be good colleagues and work with each other. 
you can make money everywhere, but you can't make any time. Mm-hmm. So you got to make sure where you're spending that time is a valuable place that they deserve it as much as you deserve the pay. You can make money anywhere, but you can't make time. That's a great quote. Well, you can, you can put anonymous under it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to put that one on the bulletin board. <laughs> but it is so true, isn't it? You can't make yeah. time. You know, um, as, you, as you get older, you know, you become, I certainly have become more picky as to where I want to spend my time. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have uh, six hours left in the day, do I want to go bike? Do I want to go see some friends? Do I, do I wanna just want to be on my own? I think we all have choices. And even for younger folks like yourselves, you know, time is not unlimited. Tomorrow is really not guaranteed. I think living with intention and passion, both at work and, and in your and personal life, I think it's, it's very important. And I really try to practice that. I also practice a couple of things that I actually put in another interview. But, you know, uh, being forgiving is important. Um, there's a quote that I like, it's not mine, uh, but it's um, people need love the most when they deserve it the least. I think it's, it's really difficult to practice, but it's really worthy uh, practicing. I try to do that in my personal life and professional life. So, so I, think, I think it's really good to, you know, good to evaluate these things and, and make sure that you know, where you're spending your time is actually they deserve to have you as well. It's a great point. I think when COVID hit, Alec and I were wondering what we were going to do with our time and how to stay busy. And the podcast was that for us. Give us an outlet to be busy. I really, really want to just express to you how thankful I am that you made the time to come on our podcast. You're one of the biggest guests we've ever had. So I'm extremely thankful that you took the time to come on and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me as well. It's, it's really nice to, uh, Nice to have, you know, learn about you through Ryan and, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And I hope this will be useful to, to some people. Like Alex said, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can already tell I've learned a lot from this interview and I know the people that listen will too. It was great meeting you, Mr. Sakul. Pleasure meeting you as well. Thank you yeah. for the opportunity for this interview. Well, guys, that wraps up the fourth episode of Chapter 2 of the Young Enterprises Podcast. I hope these interviews are helping you find a little bit about what career you might want to pursue now or down the road. If you haven't already, hit young.enterprises with a follow on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Don't worry, be happy now. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Copyright music was used during this podcast.